A Word in Season, Volume 1, Daily Messages on the Faith for All of Life by R.J. Rushdini, narrated by Abigail Walker, produced with permission by the Chalcedon Foundation. Chapter 6, Entering Life. In Proverbs 30.20, we have a very important statement concerning sin. We are told, quote, Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth, and saith, I have done no wickedness, end quote. We can see plainly that adultery is condemned, but what does the reference to eating and wiping one's mouth have to do with adultery? The meaning is this. A ship leaves no track in the seas after passing through, nor does an eagle leave a track in the sky to mark its flight. Similarly, when we eat, we may leave slight evidences of the food around our mouth, but a quick wiping of our mouth removes them. The sinner treats sin as though it leaves no mark. The adulterer or adulteress regard past sins as easily wiped out as a bit of food on the corner of their mouths. What is past is past, they hold, and they see no wickedness in their attitude. Thus, Agar, in this proverb, is doing more than condemning adultery. Our sins are compounded when we treat them as something past and therefore nothing. Our sins are indeed forgiven when we are under Christ's atonement, but the consequences of our sins remain. If through my sin I lose an arm, my arm does not grow back when I am converted. I remain a one-armed man. So too all our sins leave their mark. To deny this is to fail, like the adulterous woman, to treat sin seriously. Forgiveness gives us peace with the Lord, but the crippling of sin is a fact which remains. This is what our Lord meant when he declared that we should cut sin out of our lives even though it meant entering, quote, life halt or maimed, end quote. Matthew 18, 8, because sin is death and grace is life. Chapter 7, Excuses. One of the many things people fail to understand about God is that the Lord is no respecter of excuses. In Genesis 3, 9 through 19, God makes it clear that he regards all excuses as only ground for condemnation and judgment. Man can never approach God with anything other than perfect faith and obedience. This Jesus Christ has done in our stead, and in addition to this, has given us grace to obey him. We are thus required to give him the obedience of faith to recognize that we have been called, not to disobey God's law, but to obey it and to serve him in every area of life. But man prefers the way of excuses to the way of obedience. Our Lord ridiculed and condemned excuses in his parable of the unwilling guest, who made excuses to avoid the invitation. One man said, quote, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. End quote. Another man said, quote, I have bought five yoke of oxen and go to prove them. I pray thee have me excused. End quote. And another said, quote, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come, end quote. Luke 14, 16 through 20. Christ was emphatic that excuses not only have no standing with God, but excite instead his anger. Be sure of this, then, that God accepts no excuses for lack of faith and obedience, for failure to tithe, for failure to serve him in all our ways, or for failure to know his word. The Lord is no respecter of excuses. A world which is governed by excuses is a dangerous one. It means that if you feel that your sin has value to you, then you have an excuse for sin. It means that a worker is free to destroy or harm an employer's property if he dislikes his wages. 
It means that we excuse our children's delinquencies because we feel sorry for them or love them. In brief, excuses serve as a means of justifying sin, something God will not permit. God will, however, justify by his sovereign grace the repentant sinner. The world of excuses is the realm of sin justified. The world of grace is the realm of sinners justified and made a new creation in order, quote, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, end quote, Romans 8, 4. Choose your world, a world of irresponsibility and excuses, or the world of responsibility and righteousness. Your life depends on your choice. Chapter 8, The Right to Sin. Is there a right to sin? The obvious answer, of course, is an emphatic no. The more important question, however, is this. Do you act as though you had a right to sin? Let me illustrate. A man who was a church officer, tithed faithfully, was always ready to do some extra work for the church and to help wherever needed, did something clearly in violation of God's law. Confronted with his deliberate sin, he excused himself to his pastor, saying, quote, I know it's wrong. But when you figure how much I do for the Lord, I think I'm entitled to a little exemption now and then, end quote. Another example, a devout woman violating God's law also gave a similar excuse, quote, I'm always serving the Lord in one way or another and always putting myself out for my family and my church. One sin shouldn't matter so much against all that, end quote. What both were saying was this, their good works had built up so much credit for them with God that they were entitled to chalk up a sin now and then. Their thinking was a good example of Phariseeism and a works religion, although they denied that they believed in salvation by works. All the same, in terms of their bookkeeping, they had supposedly earned the right to sin now and then. Such thinking despises God and his law. It assumes that God owes us something for our good works, whereas it is we who owe God everything and can never put God in our debt. Our Lord taught us, quote, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants, we have done that which was our duty to do, end quote, Luke 17:10. Whatever God gives us is always an act of grace. He is the Lord and maker of all things. So we rightly sing at the offertory, quote, We give thee but thine own, whatever gifts we bring, end quote. Moreover, sin is not a right nor a privilege, but an offense, a way of death, whereas righteousness is not only a duty, but the privileged way of life. To treat righteousness as a chore and something to escape from is to reveal very clearly that one's faith, at the very least, is seriously weak or defective. Chapter 9. How to Pollute Other People I recall some years ago hearing of a man who had worked some years to solve an engineering problem without success. Then when he felt the solution was near and in a particular direction, he learned that someone else had just come up with the same invention and patented it, having learned the answer almost by accident. It would be easy for a man like that to be bitter. The broader view would be to say that all men are better off because a problem was solved faster, but not many of us are that thoughtful. However, we should be. The Bible tells us that there is an easy way to pollute and distress many people and to infect them with our sour view of life. In Hebrews 12, 1-16, 
we are warned to look diligently at some areas of life where much trouble begins for individuals, churches, and communities. We should not fall back from the grace of God. It should be our constant strength and confidence. We should avoid fornication and the profaneness of Esau, i.e. living outside of God and his word and whereby forfeiting our Christian birthright. Another warning is especially telling. We must beware of, quote, any root of bitterness, end quote, which growing up in us will not only trouble us, but also defile and pollute those around us. Bitterness is something we often nurse. We see the problems around us, the defeats we suffer, or our cause suffers, and we resent it. Bitterness is an intensely personal thing. We compare our hopes with our realities, and we feel our strong frustration with an intensity we cannot fully express. Another man's work thrives while ours founders. Another woman's child is a joy to see, and ours shames us and grieves us. We can make a long catalog of our problems and their unfairness. We may keep them to ourselves, but Scripture says that they still pollute or defile many. Bitterness is like cancer. It grows unchecked, and after a point it kills. At all times it is destructive of life. Bitterness is also like a plague. It infects other people. The answer is not, quote, positive thinking, end quote, or psychological self-help. To avoid the root of bitterness, we must look diligently lest we, quote, fail of the grace of God, end quote. Instead of defiling or polluting bitterness, quote, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord, end quote, Hebrews 12, 14. However, if you want to pollute the people around you, justify, nurse, and coddle your bitterness. It will soon infect many people around you and make them as sour and as hopeless as you are. Others will soon hold that cynicism is knowledge and faith is stupidity, and you will have become an effective missionary agent for pollution. Your root of bitterness will put a killing blight on everything you work with, and it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy of failure. In brief, bitterness is an effective way of polluting and destroying the lives and hopes of those around you. Of course, your first victim will be yourself. Chapter 10. Contagion. You can catch a cold from your friends, but can you catch good health? The answer is very obviously no. As God made clear to the prophet Haggai long ago, holiness is not contagious, but uncleanliness and sin are. Haggai 2, 10 through 14. The fact is almost too obvious to be stated, yet it must be repeated because our generation has apparently forgotten that good apples can't change bad apples, but bad apples can affect the good ones. Parents often allow their children to move in very unclean circles, morally derelict groups. Then they justify it saying, quote, my child can be a real influence for good there, end quote. Can anyone be an influence for good when he is morally compromised to begin with? The degenerate philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau once accompanied a prostitute to her room, undressed, got in bed with her, and then tried to lecture her on the evil of her ways. He was in the wrong place and the wrong position for any such preaching. Evil is contagious. Man as a fallen creature has at his best enough sin in him to respond to evil if he allows himself too much contact with it. Righteousness, however, is not contagious. It is a product of saving faith 
and a steady growth in holiness in a process known as sanctification. Righteousness is a product of faith, discipline, and work. A beautiful house can burn down in an hour. It takes weeks to build or rebuild it. The ease of evil's power is precisely in its destructiveness and destruction is an easier process than construction. It is for this reason that scripture emphasizes godly discipline and also separation. We need discipline to school us in righteousness and separation to avoid the contagion of evil. There is no substitute for discipline. It is discipline which provides the muscles and power of moral character. Professional and amateur athletes alike require a disciplined training period in order to be able to compete successfully. We cannot expect less in the realm of morality. Spiritual exercises are as valuable in their area as physical exercises are to the athlete. The idea, therefore, that contagion can produce health or character is nonsense. The Bible compares the discipline of faith and character to sowing a field. It takes time for the harvest to come. Quote, but to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. End quote. Proverbs eleven eighteen.